You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. The Rewilding Earth Podcast is supported by businesses such as Patagonia, Catula, and Biohabitats, as well as the Whedon Foundation and listeners like you. If you love the work that the Rewilding Institute is doing, please consider donating at rewilding.org. And be sure to sign up for our weekly newsletter while you're there. Bill Ryerson is founder and president of Population Media Center, an organization that strives to improve the health and well-being of people around the world through the use of entertainment education strategies. He also serves as chair of the Population Institute in Washington, D.C., which works in partnership with PMC. PMC creates long-running serialized dramas on radio and television in which characters evolve into role models for the audience, resulting in positive behavior change. The emphasis of the organization's work is to educate people about the benefits of small families, encourage the use of effective family planning methods, elevate women's status, prevent exploitation of children, promote avoidance of HIV infection, and promote environmentally sustainable behaviors. Bill has a half-century history of working in the field of reproductive health, including three decades of experience adapting the Subito methodology of social change communications to various cultural settings worldwide. Bill, thanks so much for being on the Rewilding Institute podcast today. Jack, thank you so much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be with you. We have a lot to talk about today. The thing that's at the top of my list is your fairly recent article in The Hill Global population about to hit 8 billion. Of course, now we already, we have. I just wanted to start there. What's been the feedback? It's been rewarding. That is to say, there hasn't been a lot of negative pushback, and there's been a lot of positive feedback by people who have come to recognize that, indeed, just controlling consumption is not enough to save the planet. So we've had good response to that op-ed. What are your favorite ways of couching this problem that we're facing? I will refer back to something Lister Brown used to say, which is, if you were to visit the planet three billion years ago, you wouldn't have survived more than a minute or two because there was no oxygen. You couldn't drink the water. It was filled with toxic minerals and there was no food. So it was a pretty hostile place. And three billion years of evolution of what is called the web of life, the biodiversity that makes the planet habitable is why we're all able to be here. And three years ago, the UN Environment Program issued a report uh, decrying the loss of biodiversity and the threat to extinction of thousands, even a million species that they put in the title of the report that pointed to two primary factors causing loss of biodiversity. One is expanding human habitation, and the other is expanding human farming. And habitation can be urban or rural, but it still demands farming. So those two things together are driving loss of the large wilderness spaces like the Amazon and the rainforests in Africa that are keeping the planet habitable. And a lot of people think, oh, biodiversity has never done anything for me, and the only environmental issue really is climate change. But in fact, loss of the rainforests that are the lungs of the world that absorb our carbon dioxide and release oxygen is a huge climate factor, but it is more importantly a huge factor with regard to the web of life that keeps the planet habitable. And as we 
further and further simplify the planet, we are threatening our own existence. There are people out there who, by the millions, it seems, believe that it's really a consumption issue. It's not a population issue. Of course, consumption is an issue. So it's not just a population issue. And consumption by the people in the West is particularly bad. So certainly there is an argument to be made that consumption is a factor. And indeed, consumption times numbers is the total impact. So people in the poorest countries in Africa have low consumption, low carbon dioxide emissions per capita. And so many people say, why are we worried about the number of people in poor countries where consumption and emissions are low on a per capita basis when in the United States and Europe, they're much higher? And there's a case to be made. But the answer to that is the poor are environmentally virtuous only as long as they remain poor. And they do not intend to remain poor. They do not intend to have very low consumption. Their goal is, as the countries they live in are described as, developing. They want to increase their carbon footprint. They want to increase their consumption. And from an equity standpoint, they have every right to do so. If you're living in Ethiopia, you certainly need to increase your consumption in order to lead a decent quality of life. So the ultimate test is what can the planet support on a sustainable basis? And the best research I've seen on this is the work by Cornell ecologist David Pimentel. He basically said, okay, if we're going to try to find out carrying capacity of the planet, first thing we have to do is set a standard of living because you may be able to support far more people at the Ethiopian lifestyle than you can at the American lifestyle. So he said, most people would like to live at least at the Western European lifestyle. So what can be supported at that level? So rather than saying, how many people can we fit in at absolute poverty levels? Really, how, can, how many people can be sustained with renewable resources once we're 100% dependent on renewables? at the Western European lifestyle? And the answer was 2 billion. So we're now at 8 billion, and we clearly have a lot of people who are not at the Western European lifestyle, but they'd like to get there. So the only way to achieve a sustainable planet is to encourage small family size and leveling off and decline in numbers until we get to a point that we can be sustainable on renewable resources. Right now, we're using non-renewables to a very large extent, oil, coal, and gas in particular, but also many metals and minerals that cannot be recycled or are used up in the process of making things like solar panels. So we have a long way to go to get to the point that we're 100% dependent on renewables, but by definition, non-renewables are completed as they are used. So we need to prepare for arrival at the point where we're just living on renewables. And if we can get to a 2 billion population, we can live pretty well on renewables on an ongoing basis without depleting the future prospects of upcoming generations. If an economist should ever find himself or herself or themselves listening to this podcast, 
uh, you're freaking them out right now. Of course, because they want to have endless growth. And indeed, just before we hit $8 billion, one of the right-wing think tanks, the Cato Institute, put out a book called Super Abundance, and the Wall Street Journal gave it a glowing, even fawning review, saying, yes, what the problem is we need more and more people, and $8 billion was not enough because if we have more and more people, we will have endless growth, and that will grow the gross global product, and that will make us all richer. And the idea was there's no limit to growth because economics are taught without any reference to biology or the caring capacity of ecosystems. And so economists have no idea that, in fact, the economy is a subset of the environment and not the other way around. But in fact, all economists should be required to take courses in population biology so they understand you cannot have endless growth and numbers of people and and consumption because of resource shortages. And second, where the growth is occurring is in the poorest countries on the planet. Places like Niger with a seven-child average family size and Nigeria with a five-child average family size. These places in, are mired in poverty because of their population growth. And they are not turning into super consumers and making Amazon wealthier, they are barely scraping by. And what the economists have missed in the economic history of the planet since World War II is that where economic growth has occurred and where countries that have gone from developing status to developed status, all eight of them since World War II, they have started with smaller family size and promotion of family planning. And what that did was lead to couples with the same family income supporting two children instead of six. And what that meant was they had some money left over at the end of the month. They could use that money for education, which increased the economic productivity of their children. They could also use it to buy elective goods that stimulated manufacturing. And they could save it. And the savings in places like Japan, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, Lanka, Thailand, Barbados, Bahamas, all of these countries that are going through and have gone through the demographic dividend allowed capital formation that allowed businesses to borrow and expand that allowed and created demand for employees that drove up wages that created rising taxable incomes and that allowed governments to spend money on infrastructure like roads and schools and municipal services, all of which increased economic productivity. So this process is called the demographic dividend because it's well known among people who follow demographics that it is smaller family size that has led to economic development in all of the Asian tigers. And as I said, every country that's gone from developing to develop status since World War II. It's not having more and more people born into poverty, barely scraping by. And so economists think that may be the case in places like Europe and America, that if there are more people, there'll be more consumers and they'll sell more houses and sell more land. But in much of the world, it is just causing untold 
poverty and misery. Do you have a really solid argument? Do you have the receipts? And what's going on with the headlines? Why, why is it like a nine, nine to one ratio? If it's even that, it could be a hundred percent on for weeks on end of Japan's population and everyone's in a panic. The poor people of Japan with their non-growing economy, they must be in poverty. We, they really need to increase the birth rate. If you were looking at retirement, where would you rather retire? Japan or Niger, which has the highest growth rate in the world? It's yeah. pretty clear that most people would choose Japan. And indeed, when you look at the reality of the Japanese economy, a non-growing or in this case, barely growing population about to go into declining numbers has produced a very comfortable quality of life for people economically. They're not suffering. They are the model we must look to for long-term sustainability of the planet. And we need to celebrate countries as they level off and go into declining numbers because that will enable us to avoid what otherwise could be a terrible crash in human numbers. Are the economists and others who are saying that Japan's in real trouble, are, do they believe that or are they trying to get ahead of it so that before Japan reaches this dividend level where everything is actually going to be okay, they're out of a job, their entire world model of gross domestic product and infinite growth has gone out the window. Is it threatening to their existence or are they really ignorant of the fact that it can work? I think it's some of both. If you were selling oil for a living and you had no concern about your children or the welfare of the planet, would you encourage people to buy oil? Yeah. And the same with economists whose and economic systems depend on endless growth. So indeed, selling the idea of endless growth is critically important for survival of what the system is that we currently live under. It is a system that is based on borrowing, that is based on the assumption of growth in order to pay the borrowing back. And it is, as many people who've studied it carefully have concluded, basically a Ponzi scheme. But when you're working for a Ponzi scheme, you're going to try to get people to buy, not to sell. So in, in this case, we're talking about a system that is not sustainable. And I think there are growing numbers of economists and certainly people called ecological economists like the late Herman Daly, who recognize that the current system is totally unsustainable and that we can achieve a much better quality of life without the risk of planetary collapse if we achieve a non-growing population and a non-growing economy and have an economic level that is in harmony with the ability of the planet to sustain it. Selling leveling off the population is hard enough. Selling a zero growth economy is something I've never heard any politician run on, but the number of people on the planet would not matter if we were ethereal beings. It is our economic activity that is putting the planet at risk. So we have to bring ourselves to the point where we recognize that we can have a sustainable situation if we bring population and consumption into balance with global resources. 
You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. From humble beginnings to global conservation phenomenon, the rewilding movement continues to grow and thrive amid the greatest ecological challenges our planet has faced in 65 million years. Here's how you can join us and help return balance to nature. First, go to rewilding.org and subscribe to the Weekly Digest to keep up on the latest rewilding news, interviews, and art. Second, consider donating to support the Rewilding Institute's mission to rewild North America and beyond. And for extra credit, please like, subscribe, and share this podcast to help spread the word. Thanks so much for your support. One of the biggest problems that I see is that politicians stumping for election, trying to sell the opposite of what all politicians who run for any office feel necessary to sell in order to get the vote. That seems like one of the biggest juggernauts in in my mind. Do you picture a time in the future when somebody's going to be able to flip that and actually say what needs to be said, which is really everybody is goes on a growth platform. Every politician, except for maybe school board or dog catcher, but everybody else <laughs> has to have something to do with jobs and growth and growth. How does I'm that pretty, ever turn around? I'm pretty pessimistic about it turning around. Because, as you said, there's a lot riding on the current system for a lot of people. But I think it will turn around because it has to. We will go into decline. And we really need, in terms of numbers and in terms of economic growth, economic growth will level off if for no other reason than we run out of non-renewable resources and have to live on renewables. And as that happens, we will face a lot of crises and suddenly some smart people will wake up to the fact that we have to have a whole different system in order to see the human civilization move forward. I guess that's part of the human condition that's brought us to this situation in the first place is our inability to be mature enough to see something coming and not work ahead of time to head it off. Rather, Seems like we're going to have to experience some ecological belt tightening and economic as well before no. we ever get serious about this. I, I don't see. either see any other way out, but it sure is a sad commentary on our species. I think as a species, we are most likely inclined to drink beer until we run out. And therefore, we're just going to party until the party's over. In 2014, I wrote a chapter in the post-carbon reader put out by the Post-Carbon Institute that said the way the population is growing and the way humans are expanding into wildlife territories, we are likely to face ever-growing numbers of pandemic. Not that I'm happy we're experiencing one, but it's certainly been something that we've known was likely to happen because of the way humans are interacting with wildlife in ways that we hadn't hundred years ago. And of course, pandemics have been around for a long time. But my point here is not that we're not, will or will not have pandemics. It's that we're likely to have more pandemics more frequently as we continue to expand into wilderness areas. And these pandemics will jump from wildlife populations to human populations. There's still got to be a reason why you get out of bed every morning. What is that reason? What, where do you find the hope? I think this problem is not impossible to solve. And in fact, I think it's quite easy to solve when you think about it. And we have plenty of examples, Japan being one of countries that have solved it. What's the lesson to learn from those countries? And 
And I can point to the countries I named earlier, like South Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, Japan, and all of the Asian tigers, Vietnam, Thailand, Sri Lanka. All of these have put emphasis on child spacing, smaller family size, stopping child marriage, which leads to high fertility and low education, girls' education, which leads to better informed children and fewer children in each family. In fact, for each year of secondary school, a girl achieves her ultimate fertility will be further reduced. So these are all human rights-based strategies that lead to much smaller growth rates and ultimately leveling off of populations. I, I used to think, okay, back when I got involved in the population issue in the 60s and 70s, let's just tell people that. So I started telling people that, like anybody who's academically trained, and they, as you've experienced, said, whoa, that must be crazy. So in 1976, I learned about a telenovela on Mexican television produced by a vice president of Mexico's largest network, Televisa, a man named Miguel Sabido. And he had been doing telenovelas for years and many of them very popular. But he had decided to do social content telenovelas. And he actually took an interest in the psychology of behavior change and went to visit Stanford psychologist Albert Bandura, who was best known for his research on role modeling and what makes a role model more or less influential, whether that person is a parent, a peer, a celebrity, or even a fictional character. And Bandura also studied how people gain self-efficacy. That is somebody coming to the belief that they have both the right and the ability to accomplish something new. So Sabido interviewed him and took away basic principles of how modeling can be used to influence people, not to tell them what to do, but to show them the benefits and risks of various behaviors. And then he decided, let's use melodrama because it's the most emotion-based type of programming there is. And emotion is a great enhancer of memory. For example, if you remember September 11th, 2001, more clearly than September 11th, 2011, it's probably because of emotional involvement in what happened that day. So using emotion is a way that you can really get something planted in somebody's memory. So Sabido created a typical melodrama with good and evil characters, but in his formulation, middle-of-the-road characters who were designed to represent segments of the audience, and they were struggling with issues the audience was struggling with. And in this case, they were struggling with keeping their marriage together. And that it was a couple named Marta and Hastings. And she was concerned about falling into poverty like her parents had, who had 10 children. And like many of their friends were, because they were having baby after baby, and she was afraid when the show opened that they had two children, and she was afraid she was pregnant with a third. Turned out she was not pregnant, 
but she separated her bed from her husband's bed because she didn't want to have more children. And that did not help the family harmony. And then she found out about the rhythm method and she presented that to Jesus and he played along with it until it came time to be disciplined. And then he got frustrated and walked out. And then she went to her aunt and asked her advice. And she said, Mexico has legalized something medical you can do. You should go see a doctor with Hastings. So they went to see a clinician and on primetime television with 29% of the nation's viewers watching the show, they learned about all the methods of family planning and they adopted a method and lived happily ever after. They really demonstrated the benefit of being able to determine when and whether to have children. So Sabido ran epilogues in which he gave addresses of Mexfam, the Planned Parenthood affiliate clinics. And there was a 23% increase in clinic attendance and a 33% increase in the sale of contraceptives and pharmacies in the few months following this serial. Wow. And I had laughed when I first heard about a soap opera addressing population and family planning, but when I saw that data and I said, well, this is really powerful. He also modeled interpersonal advocacy. So characters who had benefited from family planning became advocates among characters who had not. And then he ran a special toll-free number of people could call to sign up as volunteer promoters. And 3,000 people called that number to volunteer. So a colleague of mine at Population Institute convinced the owner of Televisa that Subito should do more such programs on related subjects like teen pregnancy prevention. Ultimately, between the late 70s and early 80s, he ran five of these shows. During those five, Mexico realized the most dramatic decline in fertility rate of any developing country in the 20th century up until that time. And they were awarded the UN Population Prize in the late 80s as a result of that. So I said, okay, this is really powerful. And it's a human rights-based approach. Unlike most health messaging, it's not saying do this, don't do that. It's just showing different behaviors and showing consequences. So I worked with this colleague, David Poindexter, until he retired and spreading this concept around. And then I started Population Media Center in 1998. And we've been doing these kinds of radio and television serialized dramas so far in 57 countries, reaching about a half a billion people with programming that has had quite significant measurable effects. So for example, in Ethiopia, where we did our first of what is now nine radio serial dramas, and radio is the dominant medium in Ethiopia, we had just under half the population listening on a regular basis. and. As key characters started modeling family planning use and showing its benefit, married women who were listening tripled their use of family planning. Self-reported use went from a baseline figure of 14% to 40% among married women who were listening by the end of the program. At the request of the Ethiopian government, we modeled HIV testing. Male listeners reported going for a test at four times the rate of non-listeners. Female listeners reported testing at three times the rate of non-listeners. We 
carried out 14,000 exit interviews at clinics to ask people why they had come. Over a quarter of the people at clinics named our program as the reason they had come to the clinic. So that had a huge impact, and it had impacts in other areas as well. So, for example, dealing with women's rights and gender equity, we also used that program to model a woman running for higher office. Our baseline survey showed that while women thought that was okay, only one-third of men thought it was acceptable for a woman to run for higher office. By the end of the program, among the 47% of men who were listening, they had doubled their positive attitude to 66%, thinking it was okay for a woman to run for higher office. So significant progress on the two-year period. We also addressed marriage by abduction. We got a letter from a woman in southern Ethiopia saying, thank you for dealing with the issue of marriage by abduction. Our own daughter was married, was abducted on her way to school at age 14 and ended up married as a result. So to save the family name, they often force the rape victim to marry her rapist. So this is what happened to her daughter. And she said in her letter, we've been afraid to send the 12-year-old girls to school for fear the same thing would happen to them. When your program addressed this issue through the character Wubalam, our entire village, most of whom were listening, came together and we agreed to enforce the law against marriage by abduction, which we had not realized existed. And now it's safe for our 12-year-old girls to go to school. And that was one of 25,000 letters we got in response to that program. So just that one country is an example of the kind of impact that we've had. In northern Nigeria, one of our programs was listened to by 71% of the population, and at 11 family planning clinics that asked new clients why they had come, 67% of them named the program by name. In Sierra Leone, 50% of new family planning and reproductive health clients cited our program as the primary factor that brought them to the clinic. So these programs have been extremely popular because they're not boring lectures. They're not documentaries. They are serialized dramas and people fall in love with the characters and they name their children after these characters. And they realize the characters that are transitioning into healthier behaviors are models for them to model their own behavior after. And so we've seen this phenomenon really take off. And, and certainly we know from countries that have made the transition to small family size, they are mostly very wealthy countries. And as countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America that we're working in follow this trend, their economic welfare will improve. We've also done a show in the U.S. We did a Hollywood show at the request of one of our donors who said, look, we have a teenage pregnancy problem in the U.S., you should do a TV show to address it. And so we did, and I thought it was going to end up on our website. But in fact, by the time we had produced 24 episodes of television dealing with the lives of teens in East Los Angeles in a program that ended up being called East Los High, uh, we had eight networks that wanted it, and we ended up putting it on Hulu, and it became one of their longest-running programs and is still available on Hulu's archives. But it was then the top 
five on Hulu for five years that it was there. Wow. That's incredible. This sounds almost too good to be true, actually. Well, its biggest problem is lack of scale. So we've worked in a lot of countries, but we're only able to support this type of work in 12 to 15 countries at a time. And we really need to be on the air with such programs, focusing on these key issues of stopping child marriage, girls' education, child spacing, uh, limiting family size, use of family planning, overcoming misinformation about safety and effectiveness of contraception, and related issues in 50 countries at a time. If we could do that, I think we would see much faster progress towards a sustainable planet. So, yeah, it does seem incredible. It's very exciting. It's, it is the answer to your question of why I get out of bed in the morning. I think about that letter from the woman in southern Ethiopia and say, okay, we can do that for one family. It's worth getting out of bed. But indeed, we're reaching millions of people at a time. Your track record speaks for itself. But it seems to me like people might not think of you as a threat yet. Because my question is, like, you had to have experienced pushback Mexico or somewhere from somebody with the messaging, primarily from the storytellers who are trying to tell the opposite stories. We're still a small player compared to a lot of the commercial uh, broadcasting, that's for sure. So I don't think they see us as a huge threat. But in the poorest countries, which is where we focus most of our work, we are seen as a huge ally by the governments because most governments in the countries where we're working recognize that rapid population growth is driving them towards poverty and instability. And high youth populations that are unemployed are leading to political instability. So, in fact, the goals of many of the countries where we're working are to bring about smaller family size, level off the population, preserve some of the open space in the country, and we're seen as being there to help them achieve their goals. And in fact, our programs are designed based on the policies of each country, as long as those policies are in agreement with human rights accords and UN agreements. So they see us as a great ally. And so we haven't gotten pushback. And because the shows are never telling the audience what to do, they're just telling good stories and modeling behaviors and showing consequences, the audience doesn't give us pushback. They may or may not choose to follow the modeling, but indeed huge numbers do. And so it's achieving a lot for those people. Certainly, I think if we were to take over the television industry in the U.S., we would be seen as something of a threat because the whole industry here is based on selling product. And so it's pretty hard to talk about reducing consumption and reducing your carbon footprint and living sustainably without sponsoring it with commercial products. But having said that, we have demonstrated that you can have a top hit in Hollywood with a message that is certainly focusing towards sustainability. Yeah. What about in something that's going to be a blockbuster? Have you looked at like doing an inception where you're like, get to the writers and say, hey man, this story could be enhanced by this model for this character. Just last week, I had a conversation with somebody who's very interested in seeing us do the same thing and may provide financial support to make it happen. 
a few years ago, I was invited to give a talk at the home of the Writers Guild of America Foundation CEO. And so I went out to Los Angeles and did a talk at a dinner that was attended by top Hollywood writers with top shows on the air and gave them ideas by talking about the global issues and what we've been doing around the world related to storylines they might incorporate. And I do think there's a whole line of work we could do with the entertainment industry to help them with concepts that might enhance their programs and do good for their audience and simultaneously to provide awards to recognize the best treatment of issues like reproductive health and gender equality by such shows. I know one, is there a place on one of your websites that we could go and check out the statistics, the results uh, of that you spoke of? Yes. Populationmedia.org is our website and there one can find lots of data there. Yeah. Cause the researchers in our group are going to be like, I've got to see these things. And then it's, I think enticing to to just dream a little bit because now all we're really looking at, you can tell when you've been in an area of insurmountable odds for decades, when you see the promise of one in a million Hollywood hit as really good and hopeful news, but that's where we are because we are only that step away from having one of these successes that you've already demonstrated in all over the world. And then just having that replicate over and over and having conservationists and others thinking along these lines, just the word entertainment. No, we're serious. We have to do these petitions. We've got to fight this stuff on the Hill and all of that is true. But the thing is, as you're talking, I'm hearing something that's got more promise than almost any other plan that people have combined with the possibility of success and going to scale. But if you put all of that together, I haven't heard very many better ideas than this. I agree. But think about most environmentalists focus on policymaking, and certainly there's a role for policymaking. Mm-hmm. Policymaking with regard to family size yeah. is definitely not a good idea. Coercion is a human rights violation and backfires. So helping people understand what's in their interest through role modeling is far more effective and humane. And this is true of so many environmental areas. So we dealt with deforestation and reforestation in Rwanda. We dealt with, in partnership with Jane Goodall, bushmeat consumption, Eastern Congo, and had a huge impact in both of those areas. Imagine a show on Chinese television in which key characters make it unpopular to consume ivory. And suddenly it's like the fur coats that people started shunning in New York because of entertainment. If the Chinese population found out that this is not a status symbol, but quite the opposite to have a carved ivory collection, it could do wonders for survival of elephants. So I think there's a lot that could be done on many environmental issues using entertainment education. Everyone listening to this, you might be listening to this in your favorite podcast catcher and not at rewilding.org, but there's going to be a significant extra credit section where you'll find the links that Phil's talked about today in the show and and a lot more resources at rewilding.org slash P-O-D episode 104. And this really leads to an awful lot more discovery and really promising stuff in an area that we've had no reason to be anything but depressed 
for quite a long time. Bill, thank you so very much. And I want to have you back. I'd love to come back. Really, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this a lot and be happy to have another conversation. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org pod. That's rewilding.org pod.